0: This is The Guardian. In the wake of an honours list fallout and a remarkable resignation letter from Boris Johnson, we've heard Rishi Sunak's most outright attack on his predecessor. Boris Johnson asked me to do something that I wasn't prepared to do. And if people don't like that, then tough. Meanwhile, Johnson's ally and protector, Nadine Doris says she's the victim of a cruel kind of class war waged by the posh boys in Number 10.
1: I think you come to a point in life when you have to stop, when you can't just be pushed around, when you can't allow people to bully you, as I've just been bullied by Number 10.
0: Will we ever escape the wreckage of Boris Johnson's time as PM? Or is he actually taking the first steps of a carefully planned comeback? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Kriar, and David Gork, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister. Hello to you both. Hello. 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 In the first part of today's action Pack podcast, we will be talking about what we're expecting from the Privileges Select Committee report about Boris Johnson and his behaviour in the House of Commons, and the not-unassociated public row between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. In the second part, we'll go on to ask not only what the Conservative Party is going to do now after this great uh, bust-up, but equally what the latest drama at the top of the Scottish National Party means for Scotland's politics. Let's talk about the Tories to start with. Last Friday, Boris Johnson, as far as I understand it, saw the report that was about to be published by the Privileges Committee and decided to quit As an MP. Now, that report hasn't been published yet. It's been delayed once again. And as far as I gather, it's now expected on Thursday this week. Pippa, you know about such things. What is behind the delay?
1: Well, primarily is that uh, Boris Johnson was given the report a couple of weeks before the expected publication date to look through it all and to have a think about it, consult his lawyers, whatever he wanted to do. And in the meantime, the committee was going to send it off to the printers and get it bound and do the things that committees normally do. However, Boris Johnson preempted all of that by quitting on Friday and laying into the committee, being very critical of them and their motivations. And as a result of that, the committee decided that it had to bring forward the publication date. But that still takes time. So that was really one of the sort of logistical reasons for the delay. But also the committee had to finally sign off, off on the report, which they've now done, because there was it was still open technically until they did that and as we saw earlier in the week Boris Johnson has also issued 11th hour submissions written up by his lawyers I think it was 11:57 on Monday night just before midnight he sent a letter to the committee that also had to be looked at and they had to decide whether to take it into account or not but finally it looks like we're there and that we are expecting to get it on Thursday okay Right. Now, um, it's some sign,
0: isn't it, of the rancorous atmosphere that all this is happening in, that some members of the Privileges Committee have been offered security because of criticism they've received from Boris Johnson's supporters. It's a terrible, terrible turn of events. Is that unprecedented, as far as you both understand it?
2: As far as I know, I don't know of other sort of circumstances. It does have to say it reminds me of the kind of worst period of of the Brexit debates in September 2019 where you know Boris Johnson was using very inflammatory language about surrender acts and betrayals and what have you and you know people were getting threatening messages and 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 asking him to to stop and he refused to do so and you know he does tend to use intemperate language i mean what is very striking again about that sort of resignation statement quite how personal it is he just you know, he attacks Harriet Harman, goes and talks about another subject, then attacks Harriet Harman again, then goes and write, writes more about another subject and then comes back to Harriet Harman again. The desire to sort of personalise it and go for particular individuals. I mean, in truth, all seven members, but Harriet Harman gets a name check on, I think, three occasions. That, I'm afraid, is is the way that he operates, because, you know, he essentially tries to manipulate the mob against what he describes as the elite, and that's just his modus operandi.
0: It's really telling isn't it That um, this is the same week That there were news reports Of polling suggesting That one in four people Think Covid was a hoax You know Such is the grip Of conspiracy theory Of of various kinds On quite a large share Of public opinion now And Boris Johnson Definitely sort of Manipulates that tendency He knows what he's doing Doesn't he There's a chorus Of Boris Johnson supporters In the right-wing media If you watch things Like GB News You read the Telegraph And the Mail Who speak in that Very sort of Conspiratorial paranoid Vocabulary And that's the gallery That he's playing to Knowingly
1: yeah, it's populist. And it he's tapping into, I think, some quite dangerous forces. And I mean, David mentions the Brexit, Brexit wars in Parliament, but it was also is very real and very recent that MPs have been targeted, sadly, um, in two cases, losing their life. But there are other examples on a daily basis of MPs receiving threats that have to report to police. And I think that the standing of Parliament in general and the reputation of, of politicians in particular right across the parties is diminished by some of the behaviour of people like Boris Johnson and that inevitably has a, a sort of a knock-on effect and kind of, I'm not suggesting that you know, they're, they're explicitly linked, but I do think that it creates a much more febrile atmosphere and that isn't a good thing when you're trying to keep public figures safe.
0: Yeah, this is very ugly sort of, are you thinking what I'm thinking tone to... to... A lot of that letter. I am not alone in thinking, he writes, that there is a witch hunt underway to take revenge for Brexit and ultimately to reverse the 2016 referendum result. And this is just all about the fact that he's been found out. I wonder what can or will happen to Boris Johnson now. He's resigned uh, uh, as the MP for Uxbridge. There is going to be a by-election. Off he goes. To what extent is there any accountability once that has happened?
1: In in terms of Parliament, I mean, it does look like the committee is going to publish a report and the MPs will probably get some sort of form of vote on it, although whether there might be some games played by the Whip's Office, we'll have to wait and see. But if it reaches a point that uh, there is a vote, it looks like Boris Johnson will face a sanction that would suspend him for Parliament, even though he's already left. And I think the interesting thing about that is that somebody put it to me earlier that it's a bit like being a member of a golf club, that should he ever come back to Parliament, in future you can see and maybe it's a bit far-fetched but you can see a situation under the standing orders of the house where they say you know what you had this sanction you had this this fine outstanding on your golf club account you know you have the sanction outstanding you still need to you know pay your fine you pay your dues before you can come back and be here permanently in 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 your new role now that might sound far-fetched but I think people are talking about these things and you know they're also talking about where does it leave his honours list for example particularly if some of those individuals that were on it were not just involved in the original partygate stuff but were also involved in representing him subsequently and speaking out about the committee for example and suggesting again you know maybe sort of uh, maybe sort of impugning its integrity what then happens if they end up in the house of lords which is obviously also parliament
0: david you think that's a realistic prospect i mean that sort of hints at what, the Privileges Committee then insisting that the gongs are withdrawn from people who've been involved in undermining and demeaning the Privileges Committee?
2: My guess is that it's, it's too late for that, that it having been announced. And and, and look, this is the uh, weakest point, I think, in, in sort of Rishi Sunak's position, about you know, why was the honours list approved whilst there was still this investigation hanging over Boris Johnson. And the fact that the list was published just before the Privileges Committee report comes out and, you know, just as Boris Johnson resigns. And, and, you know, and this is, I mean, this is a very Boris Johnson thing to do. By his action on Friday, almost the story has kind of moved on from Partygate and whether he'd misled the House of Commons or not. And it's gone on to a debate about what's the future of Boris Johnson and what happened with Nadine Dorries and the peerage. and And, and the sort of debate moves on. Now, in terms of of punishment for Boris Johnson, I I think the power is now in the hands of Rishi Sunak and future Conservative leaders. They can very easily keep him out of Parliament as a Conservative MP from now on. And that's really what they should do.
0: Yeah, and deny the dreams of the likes of Jacob Rees-Mark, who who are still talking about Boris Johnson's glorious future return at some stage. You just talked about the hoo-ha about Boris Johnson's resignation honours list. So let's talk about that. I mean, that's another sense in which this has been quite a seven or eight days. We have seen the spectacle of politicians who go on and on, as we all know, about the will of the people and the awfulness of the establishment, getting in a righteous fury about the fact that some of them have not been awarded peerages, right? That's the sort of strange twisted end point that this politics has arrived at and that has all come in the midst of very public hostilities between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson which are quite amazing to hear really. On Monday, Rishi Sunak responded to a question about the resignation on his list by saying this. Boris Johnson asked me to do something that I wasn't prepared to do because I didn't think it was right. Uh, that was to uh, you know, either overrule the HOLAC committee or to make promises with people. Now, I wasn't prepared to do that. As I said, I didn't think it was right. And if people don't like that, then tough. On Monday night, Nadine Dorries, who is a host on Talk TV, the uh, somewhat right-leaning TV channel, spoke to the Talk TV host, Piers Morgan, where she made plain her sort of account of what happened as far as her peerage is concerned. She said this.
1: This story is about a girl from Breck Road in Liverpool who worked every day of her life since she was 14 years old had something offered to her for that people from that background don't get offered, removed by two privileged posh boys who went to Winchester and Oxford and taken away duplicity and cruelly because they have known for months that it wasn't the case, and yet they let me and they let Boris Johnson continue to believe that was the case.
0: Pippa, what's been going on here? And I ask you that for one reason above all others. There are two stories at work here, right? One, as far as I understand it, and forgive me, it is somewhat hard to sort of untangle all this, is that Nadine Doris was said she's probably going to get a peerage and was told that she would have to stand down as an MP forthwith to get that peerage, right? and the alleged blocking of her is no more or less complicated than that. And there's her account, which says there is posh boy skullduggery afoot, and it was all a, a snobby business of wanting to keep the likes of her out of the House of Lords. They're the two sort of narratives at play. Who do we believe, I wonder? Hmm, that's a tricky question.
1: It's it's also unedifying, isn't it? And I think that the constituents, her constituents in mid-beds must just be thinking, what on earth? earth is going on here the most that we've seen from our MP who I think has made two has appeared twice in the House of Commons and voted nine times in recent months which is not very much compared to lots of MPs and um, the most that we've heard from her is her banging on about not getting a peerage and yet you know she's ostensibly a woman of the people and there to represent them and their best interests And we're in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis. People have massive supermarket bills, energy bills, are worried about their mortgage rates. There's there's a lot of stuff going on in people's lives at the moment. And yet all of her focus and attention seems to be on whether or not she is being promoted by virtue of having former prime ministerial patronage to an unelected house. And I think they're just going to be sitting there going, she cares more about that than she does about us, don't they? Which one? I don't
0: know whether you you know this. Which one is true? Is it the fact that she did not understand or chose not to understand that if she was going to get a period, she'd have to stand down as an MP? Or is there, notwithstanding the, the slightly surreal nature of what she said, some truth in the idea that she was, she was blocked for whatever reason by Rishi Sunak and his aides?
1: So I think from speaking to people behind the scenes about this a lot, that there is a process. And one thing we know about Rishi Sunak is that he's a stickler for due process, sometimes to the expense of sort of, you know, being able to show political dexterity. But regardless, he sticks to the rules. And the whole process about, the, about peerages comes through the Cabinet Office, which yes, is sat next to Downing Street. And it's not for the politicians to get involved in it. It's the Cabinet Office responsibility to talk to the person that appointed the peer. So in this case, Boris Johnson. And if there's anything that he needs to communicate to the individuals that he's appointed, he needs to do that.
0: Ah, and in that sense, he was at, he was at fault because it, do, it seems that he may not have been entirely open and honest with Nadine Doris about what was required in order for her to get the peerage.
1: And I know that the prospect of Boris Johnson saying something that he thinks people might want to hear is a far-fetched one but nevertheless it sounds like this might be what's happened on this occasion ah
0: good right okay i'm closer to understanding that now um in any event david she should have understood the process shouldn't she
1: i suppose
2: so you sort of slightly wonder whether this was sort of all set out to boris johnson in a letter which he didn't read i mean I, i it's odd because truth be told if it was set out that oh look if you resign then you can go to the house of lords and if you don't resign then we can't send you to the House of Lords. I think, from the perspective presumably of both Boris Johnson and Nadine Dorries, well, that's fine. She'll resign. She wouldn't worry too much about that. So why that message didn't get passed on? You know, other than that perhaps Boris Johnson didn't read to the end of the letter. I don't know. I, I think it's I think it's a bit it, it's a, it's a bit odd, but essentially unedifying.
0: But in any case, it's worked out as a pretext for this slightly strange and increasingly small band of politicians who seem to want to go to their political graves, really, making the case of how great Boris Johnson was and is and would be in the future, given half a chance, right? And so, as you say, Nigel Adams, the MP for Selby and Aynstie in Yorkshire, he definitely is standing down. There is definitely a by-election there. The same applies to Uxbridge, where Boris Johnson has resigned. Nadine Dorries' seat in mid (laughs) Bedfordshire, we're still not sure because she said she's standing down, but she hasn't actually done that yet. Certainly as far as Nigel Adams and Dean Dorries is concerned What's it all about? Why have they either threatened to or have stood down? You know, Why are they trying to pull the roof in? Because it's not like there's any clear ideological motive at work here Do they just want to as a matter of sort of blunt and crude revenge To do whatever they can to damage Rishi Rishi Sunak?
2: That's what it looks like to me (laughs) Does
0: it look like that to you?
2: I, I
1: definitely think it's a bit of that, but it's also about recognising that their own career prospects in the House of Commons under anyone other than Boris Johnson are probably uh, quite severely limited. Yeah, but then
0: they could just stand down at the next election. So in other words, what's the, what's the motivation for causing this trouble?
1: Well, Nadine Doris, I mean, this is a really interesting one, because of course, two of the by-elections, Selby and Uxbridge, are going to happen because Boris Johnson and Nigel Adams have formally stood down, their writs have been moved, and then we'll get the date for the by election and two of those seats will be by-election on that one day. What Nadine Doris seems to be doing is biding her time, because there's a bit technical this, but there's a time limit. If you move a writ for by-election, you then have 21 to 27 working days to hold the by-election. So once that time period, you know, the seven days have passed, she could then stand down and Rishi Sinek would have to announce another by-election date so thereby having three by-elections across two separate dates which would be a political headache for him he wants to get it all over and done with so it feels to me and certainly a lot of Tory insiders believe that she's trying to inflict as much damage and as much pain on Rishi Sunak as she can.
0: But in revenge for as they see it his awful treatment of their hero Boris Johnson?
1: I think in her case that's almost certainly true she feels it all very personally and very viscerally.
0: Okay Now, at Prime Minister's questions on Wednesday, Keir Starmer, not unsurprisingly, attacked Rishi Sunak for signing off honours for Tory cronies. Then Sunak returned fire by mentioning Tom Watson, now known as Baron Watson of Wire Forest. And obviously what that really pointed up for the 900th time was the sheer, unseemly lunacy of the House of Lords, which we haven't talked about yet. Because let's not forget, Nadine Dorries and Nigel Adams were jockeying to be elevated, supposedly elevated, to this legislative chamber that also includes Evgeny Lebedev and Ian Botham and dozens of hereditary peers who are still there for reasons no one understands and a load of bishops and all that. I mean, that's another thing that sits under all this. What on earth is that institution still doing there? Presuming the Dean Dorries does sooner or later hand in her notice, we are going to be faced with by-elections in Uxbridge and South Ryslip, mid-Bedfordshire, Selby so and Um Uxbridge is a goner as far as the Tories is concerned. It's fair to say, isn't it? Pippa?
1: Yeah, I reckon. I mean, there was some polling just before Boris Johnson stood down that suggested that the Tories, that he could still hang on to it. But even before that point, it was in Labour's top target seats. And I think given that everything's going on, the Tories will try and play a local campaign talking about ULES and London issues. But I think the national picture is so difficult for them particularly given everything around Boris Johnson, that I think it'd be very, very hard for them to hang on.
0: For those of us who don't live in London, can you remind us what ULES stands for? I've forgotten.
1: It's the it's the ultra-low emission zone. It's the extension of a sort of an anti-pollution charge on older vehicles.
0: Okay, and then as far as mid-Bedfordshire and Selby and Aintsey are concerned, they are both, on the face of it, very safe Tory seats. But we all know what has happened lately, Tiverton and Honiton is a good example. Owen Paterson's own seat, old seat in Shropshire, this happened. There have been upsets. Do you think upsets are at all possible or likely in either of those?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. There was a recent polling, uh, the MRP polling for all those constituencies suggested that actually Labour could actually be the, the biggest party. So that, so mid Bedfordshire, even though Nadine you know, Doris is, I think it's 24,000 majority, Labour came second. I mean, it's quite far behind actually and the Lib Dems came third and they've kind of pitched themselves as the as the most likely to pick up the votes that might lead the Tories this time so it doesn't feel like there's a sort of an accommodation as there has been in some of the recent by-elections between Labour and the Lib Dems so you might end up seeing I suppose them spitting the, the oppositional vote and the Tories coming through the middle but if one of them feels more clearly ahead than maybe voters i mean voters are canny aren't they though they might be able to work out it themselves but certainly in selby it does feel like that even while it's a solid seat for the tories the mood of voters is such that they could vote against them. It would be much as a protest, vote against the Tories as anything else. And it would be really symbolic because it was one of those types of seats that would show that Labour potentially would be on course to, you know, a big victory at the local election rather than the sort of hung parliament territory we're all talking about. And that would be a huge boost to Keir Starmer and his narrative, Labour's narrative, about, about having the capacity to win the next election outright.
0: And if the Tories lose all three, David, Rishi Sunak is just even more stuck in this sort of purgatory that he seems in at the moment. In in, in other words, the Tory party, at the top anyway, is in a more stable state than it was under either Liz Truss or Boris Johnson. But it's not making any progress. And that sense will deepen.
2: I think a lot of Conservative MPs, if they get really bad results in these by-elections, will blame Boris Johnson. I mean, certainly that's what I would do. I I would blame those three people. Uh, and say you can't read much into it into the
0: general position. I mean, in that sense, these three by-elections would be the sort of climactic episode in what um, the politics weekly regular Raphael Bear calls "Long Johnson." Yes, <laughs> this shadow that Boris Johnson has cast over his party in the country. Right. On that note, we'll pause for a minute. When we come back, we'll talk a little more about the Conservative Party and where exactly it is heading. And we will also talk about the Scottish National Party and Nicola Sturgeon. <music> Welcome back. Right, it's time for us to ask in a, in a sort of big-picture sense about where exactly the Conservative Party might be going now. It is said that the vast majority of Tory MPs now are very glad to see the back of Boris Johnson, but there are still voices, as we know from these MPs who, are, who have caused by-elections, who don't want to see the back of him and think the Tory Party's made a dreadful mistake and are sort of at war with their own side. Um, one of the, uh, the voices and faces within that sort of camp is the freshly ennobled Sir Jacob Brees-Marg, who gave Boris Johnson a glowing review on Where Else? GB News. Boris dominates the news because he is still the biggest figure in British politics, the most charismatic, the most well-known, and somebody who has an ability to, to make the news uh, on a day like today. Here's a question for both of you, because I guess in different capacities you both talk to Tory MPs a fair bit. Is my impression correct that the band of sort of fanatical Johnson loyalists now numbers about, what, four or five plus Lord Frost, right? And that 98% of Tory MPs have just had enough of all his nonsense?
1: I think that's probably right. I mean, there are certainly MPs in the 2019 intake that feel that they owe their seats to him because obviously they were part of that 80-strong majority that he, that he managed to win um, at that election. There's more sort of despondency there rather than relief about seeing the back of him.
0: Even though they feel despondent, they're not minded to act up about it now. There there is a sort of acceptance.
1: I think think even Tory voters feel that you know Boris Johnson's time, at least for now, and that's the key point, at least for now, has, has passed, even though he still obviously has huge amounts of support in the Tory grassroots party membership. There's a recognition amongst MPs, even those that were favourable towards him that actually he has made that shift from being a a huge electoral asset to the Conservative Party to potentially being an electoral liability and uh, interestingly he you know he still sort of um, dines out on the fact that he was this great election winner well you know it's, it's untested now, isn't it? And he does seem to sort of like, we saw it with the, the, the first Tory leadership contest when Theresa May won, we saw it with the, the last Tory leadership contest when he didn't stand against Rishi Sunak and we've seen against now, again now that he kind of jumps before he's, he's pushed so that he doesn't have to go through the rigours of being judged by, in this case, his, his parliamentary peers and his own constituents. So whether he still has the golden touch or not, I'm not quite so sure. But That all applies to this side of a general election. And I think after the general election, you know, if Keir Starmer wins, if Labour are in power, if there's a hung parliament and maybe it's not as stable as it might be and Rishi Sunak's gone, then you can see a world where Conservative MPs think, well, look, he he did actually win us this massive majority and maybe he's done his time, he's done his penance, and maybe there's a route back from it. That's certainly what he wants. Whether it actually comes to pass, I think we'll have to wait and see.
0: See, what he does have on his side, David, outside the bounds of the Parliamentary Conservative Party is this huge amount of noise generated by the right-wing media, right? So the Mail and the Telegraph, or large swathes of them, are slavishly and fanatically loyal, it seems, to Boris Johnson, right? And you've got a lot of voices online who make endless pro-Johnson noises. And in that sense, you wonder whether the fact that most Tory MPs, for the moment anyway, are glad to see the back of them, how much that's outweighed by that, right? There's a tremendous amount of volume that he generates whenever one of these crises happens. He's not the first.
2: Well, I think Pippa makes an important distinction between this side of a general election and, and the other side. So... It's pretty obvious that what Boris Johnson wants now is for Rishi Sunak to fail, and that means losing the next general election. Now, if you're a Conservative MP, you you might consider you owe something to Boris Johnson, but if you're sitting on a small majority, you're you're, you're not that keen on losing the next general election because that means losing your job. So they're not really aligned. I think there is an interesting question as to what happens post a general election defeat, And if Rishi Sunak went, but I have to say, whoever leads the Conservative Party, if they can possibly resist Boris Johnson coming back, they would be wise to do so. Because he's coming back for one reason and one reason only, which is to take their job. So all the incentives on whoever leads the Conservative Party after 2024 is still to say no.
0: Right. You take my point, though, that Tory politics now happens or a lot of it happens, way beyond the Houses of Parliament and the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And Boris Johnson now remains a hero of this very Brexity, somewhat conspiracy theory-minded, but very noisy sort of coalition of interests and, and voices in the media. Right? And that remains the case. He's got that asset on his side, hasn't he?
2: Yeah, that, that is true, which is why you can't completely dismiss him. I mean, I've, I've been very much of the view, or you know, don't write off, Boris Johnson, I, I think you can now write him off for you know, the next <laughs> year or so.
0: Well, you're not writing him off then, are you, really? If you write someone off, but only for a bit, you're not writing them off.
2: Well, yes, it's not a complete write-off, <laughs> is it? No, it's a sort of temporary, suspended write-off. A
0: couple of new tyres and, and, a, and a new gearbox, and he might be back on the road. I, I still think it's really hard
2: because uh, for him in just the sense that all the incentives on any Conservative leader is to kind of keep him out. But you're right, there will be cheerleaders and if the Conservatives are struggling with the general election results and then in the next Parliament, the kind of the cry for bring back Boris will be heard and it's just the question of whether the Conservative Party is mad enough to, to listen to it.
0: The story has not ended yet. Right, just briefly to finish, momentous events um, politically in Scotland over the last week with the arrest of the former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, who was detained for questioning for seven hours and then released without charge. This comes after um, events um, leading up to this. This isn't the first instalment of this story. But nonetheless, this says something very, very powerful, doesn't it, about politics in Scotland, Pippa? Big things are inevitably going to change here.
1: I think that um, the minute that Colin Beattie, the former SNP treasurer, and then Peter Murrell, the party chief executive, who is also, of course, married to Nicola Sturgeon, were arrested to be interviewed under caution about the SNP's finances, it became inevitable that Nicola Sturgeon would be too. So on one level, it wasn't really much of a surprise that she arranged interview. She went in and she told them what they asked. She answered all the questions and she came out and she protested her innocence. But those seeing those words in black and white, Nicola Sturgeon arrested, hearing that on the radio and the telly, hearing the shock that people, despite the fact that we all knew it was coming, that people felt because to them it represented such a fall from her position of being somebody who was seen as being a consummate politician, having, despite the divisiveness of the the independence issue and and the the salience of that in Scotland, with Scotland, she was seen as somebody who could do no wrong in many quarters in terms of her political skills anyway. I'm not necessarily talking the substance of policy. And, you know, she looked set to leave the SNP and go on to create things, some big international job or whatever else. That may all still happen, of course, but it sullies her. It sullies the SNP brand. And it comes at a time when the SNP had been in power in Scotland for, you know, more than a decade, a big chunk of time. And that time for change pool that we're seeing, across the rest of the UK and the Conservative Party in response to the Conservative Party, which has been in power for a similar amount of time, is also happening in Scotland. And it's very powerful. The SNP looks like it is out of steam. They've got a weak leader. The previous leader is uh, there's issues there. It looks like a party that's run out of steam and riding over the horizon is Keir Starmer and his his army of of, potential Labour MPs north of the border. And they're determined to capitalise on it.
0: It's remarkable, David, as well. If you look at three of the biggest figures in recent British politics—Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, and Nicholas Sturgeon—in each case, they've encountered massive difficulty. They've been marginalised by their own parties. They're in trouble. You know, in various ways that that applies to all three. It's that's quite startling. I don't think that's ever happened before. The 2019 election only happened what four years ago,
2: and let's not forget Joe Swinson either. So, uh, so these, it's easy things, to
0: forget Joe Swinson. Well. In fairness, <laughs> but I take your point.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, you, there, there's a sort of point about sort of political longevity as well. I mean, you know, generally this, this, this politics has got speeded up, and you know, people move on incredibly quickly. You know, no great long
0: careers. And in Sturgeon's case, paper, it, it seems to me, and this was true of her predecessor, Alex Salmond, that she ran the SNP really from within a very, very small clique at the top. Somebody in Scotland said to me five or six years ago, well, the problem with the SNP is it's run like a family business, right? And what that means is that parties are very brittle and accident prone. If everything is down to the decisions and the conduct of the reputation of a very, very small number of people, then inevitably, sooner or later, something goes wrong, right? And I, and I wonder, without getting into the question of the accusations that she faces, whether that's kind of part of the story here somehow.
1: I think I think that is a problem for the SNP. And it's not just about the past, it's about the immediate future. And I mean that because I say that because Hamza Yousaf, Scotland's new first minister, new leader of the SNP, was very much Nicola Sturgeon's man. He billed himself as continuity Nicola Sturgeon. He had a very similar policy platform to her and she was effectively his mentor. And so if she's now fallen from grace and is in trouble, then that impacts more on him because he was part of the small clique than it might do on somebody fresh on you coming in. So it's a big, big problem for him. And it means that he's gonna be asked about it every single day, about why he's not dealing with her by suspending her, which she did very speedily when others in her party were were in trouble. And it's gonna be very, very difficult for him and therefore the party to move on from.
0: Everything's falling down, isn't it? And we're not entirely sure what it's going to replace. Politics at the moment feels like sitting in a waiting room, <laughs> to me, kind of endlessly. Pippa, you're nodding. That is what it feels like, isn't it?
1: It does a bit. I mean, we kind of we sort of lurch from one thing to the next, doesn't it? And when Rishi Sunak took over, we thought, oh, maybe things will calm down a bit. But oh, no, then there was Boris Johnson back in his honours list in the Privileges Committee. Now, you know, that's all still going on. And, the, the next kind of thing in everyone's size is the election. And it's only, you know, a year or 18 months away. Everything that happens between now and here, I mean, I'm afraid I think that the election campaign's really begun already. Yeah. And everything between now and then is going to be seen through the prism of that vote and, uh, and influencing the electorates uh, to back one party or another. And it's going to be very hard, actually, for the parties to do anything substantial when that in the moment, politics matters so much.
0: Yeah, we're counting down, aren't we, David? Inevitably. There is even talk of an autumn election I heard this week. I don't know whether you believe that. But anyway, this period that we are still stuck in is definitely falling away now. And one way or another, we are moving into the future, aren't we?
2: We are, but it's, 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 it's still quite a distance between now and the next general election. I mean, I, don't, I would dismiss an autumn 2023 general election. You, know, you feel that there is something pretty major going to happen next year, and we're, we're waiting see precisely
0: what it is it reflects the national condition politics doesn't it we're all standing in queues of various kinds feeling bored anyway we do our best to entertain you week in week out thank you for joining us pippa and david thanks for having us thank you thank you and thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed today's episode i'm sure you did uh, if you did make sure you subscribe to politics weekly uk wherever you get your podcast sorry about the clanking doors and even better leave us a review this episode was produced... Sorry, right, we have dogs and all sorts of <laughs> background. It's all part of life's rich pageant. It's what happens when you sit in a
1: corridor in the House of Commons trying to do a podcast.
0: I should emphasise that towards the end, Pip. I has been sitting in a corridor in the House of Commons. <laughs> this episode was produced by Jack Claramont, who's not in a corridor in the House of Commons. The music is by Axel Cucutier, and the executive producers, as ever, are Maz Ebtarhaj and Nicole Jackson.
1: This is The Guardian.